reviewing the scientific literature to answer your questions about gender diversity, this is Classroom Psychology. And now here's your host, Dr. Cora Sargent. Hello everybody and welcome to Classroom Psychology. I'm your host, Cora. Thank you so very, very much for joining me. It is wonderful as always to see you. Uh, welcome. We've been doing this for nearly a year now. Uh, just about a full year of Classroom Psychology. What are you still doing here? <laughs> You've got nothing better to do with your time. It's genuinely wonderful to see you uh, and great to be talking about gender diversity uh, with such wonderful, esteemed listeners from around the world. 12 countries represented in our listenership these days, uh, which is wonderful. It's wonderful to see you. So let's talk about gender. And hey, let's start with the news, because goodness me, before we get started in our topic for the week, we're going to talk about the news because the government has finally released its draft guidance for schools uh, for consultation that is now actively out, just started this week. And it's really interesting guidance. The guidance, you know, has been going for like five years in the works. It's been, you've been waiting for it for five years uh, and uh, it just got you know, draft guidance got released. I gotta say, there's some questions I think about the guidance about whether it, <laughs> it's pretty bad. It's pretty bad, y'all. We'll stick to the psychology. I'll let other amazing uh, speakers talk about. Um, you know, talk about the potential legality of the guidance. Talk about the challenges uh, that it might pose for schools in implementing it. We'll stick to the psychology. Uh, I think the first main challenge of this guidance is the way it describes transgender people. Uh, you know, it kind of says you know, young people can't really be transgender. It won't describe them as transgender because they can't get a gender recognition certificate. Gotta bear in mind that as of just a few years ago, only about just shy of 5,000 people in the UK had a gender recognition certificate, even though there are hundreds of thousands of transgender adults. So getting a GRC really isn't the benchmark for entry into this community that the government seems to think it is. And for sure, children and young people can be uh, transgender. You know, a uh, big study, we talked about it before, the US Transgender Survey, 27,700 respondents, all transgender and gender diverse adults from the US. Uh, Turban and colleagues write about it uh, beautifully, and I love their work. But they describe how, you know, very, very frequently the median age of people coming out, or the, the median age of people understanding their own gender is somewhere in the range of about six, seven years of age, Right. And then the median age that people came out was 20. So it takes, on average, 14 years for trans kids to tell someone about their gender identity. That most trans kids don't come out doesn't mean that they aren't trans, right? Like, obviously. So there are absolutely transgender children and young people, and they need looking after, frankly. Uh, and this, uh, this guidance does a couple of big things. It sort of says that we shouldn't be using uh, the pronouns of children, young people uh, of their gender identity, the one that's right for them, if they are uh, below the age of, I think, 12 or something. Uh, they say that, you know, children basically in primary school, I think they say primary age children should not have different pronouns to their sex-based pronouns used about them in any circumstance. That's wild as a thing to ask schools to do uh, and clearly exclusionary of, of the like transgender children that exist, of which there are 
a good many, um, right? 0.5% of the population and most of those people learned in childhood. Uh, yeah, there's quite a few. Um, and bathrooms too. They say if a child does not want to use toilets uh, designated for their biological sex and the school or college has considered all the relevant factors outlined, then they may wish to consider whether they can provide or offer the use of an alternative toilet facility. This should be secured from the inside and for use by one child at a time. Amazing. Amazing. Denying transgender children and young people access to the facilities and language that, uh, like, <laughs> that are right for their gender uh, is actively potentially going to be doing harm to these children. Uh, pretty wild. And of course, the guidance does this beautiful thing where it describes, you know, the CAS interim review report stating that social transition is not a neutral act. And therefore, saying that we need to be very conservative, they have this deeply conservative approach to social transition. That is, you know, changing somebody's, you know, somebody changing their own gender expression to fit better their gender identity and not necessarily changing their body. That's, you know, the bodily configuration stuff is more transition-related medical services. That's their job to work with. When it comes to schools, social transition, we're talking about children and young people, is often the only transition they have available to them until they get access to transition-related services in adolescence, um, if they can, because it's incredibly difficult to get access to them. Uh, but what the guidance fails to state, which they always do when people talk about this stuff, they're like, social transition is not a neutral act. What they fail to state is that the CAS review interim report also says that doing nothing is not a neutral act, right? So they, the CAS review says you know, social transition, not a neutral act, but hey, not like prohibiting social transition, also not a neutral act. So when the government guidance is sort of uh, taking the first of those statements and ignoring the second, that guidance uh, fails to consider uh, the evidence uh, in front of it, uh, even when it's, you know, even the evidence from the sources that it is citing, of which that is the only one in the guidance. I can't find any other research that it cites, although I assume that it's evidence-based, but I gotta say that as uh, my understanding of the literature, uh, it really struggles to, to be evidence-based. This one, um, you know, claiming that transgender children are, <laughs> that people who are young can't be transgender, or at least stating that we're not going to use the word transgender to refer to them because they can't get a gender recognition certificate. Uh, listen, that's poor evidence-based practice to my mind because the evidence is clear. Trans kids are real uh, and they need our full support and prohibiting or like delaying access to that support runs the risk of causing harm here. And um, you know, we talked before about the values of affirmative care in schools, the values of using a name and pronoun that fit the person better, the values of supporting children and young people to explore their gender if they are questioning. I don't think that any of that is problematic, uh, but the guidance is far more conservative in its approach than I might expect. Um, you know, but we'll see what the government does. It's still in consultation and we'll see what happens. But today... You know, I, I, you know, we're going to keep covering the news a little bit, I think. Uh, hopefully you'll find that helpful. Uh, who knows? Uh, you know, get in the comments. Uh, send me some comments. Come find me. Uh, let me know what you think. Uh, is it good? Uh, find me at Classroom Psych uh, on Twitter. You probably know this Twitter. My goodness, Elon Y X. Um, but hey, this week, 
much as we do every time we come together. We'll take the statement of a public figure or a politician, in this case, the co-founder of LGB Alliance and now director of LGB Alliance, Kate Harris, who's talking about, you know, as she does, talks about gender diversity um, in the form of confident declaration. We'll take it for the question we hope it was intended to be, and we will see if we can't find an answer together. So here we have there, you know, the founder, co-founder of LGB Alliance and director of LGB Alliance, Kate Harris. Jeremy, it's much more fundamental than that. The things that drive us are the fact that school children from the age of five, from September, are going to be taught that there's really no such thing as girls and boys. Mm. And that if a girl is in any way stepping outside the traditional role, she will be told that she is almost certainly trans. We see this I'm now sorry, that is completely We, we see this now with teenagers, a 3,000% rise in women, girls going for gender identity services because girls like me, who are tomboys, who non-conform from traditional stereotypes, are told today that it's much more much more likely that they're born in the wrong body than that they right, are. They may be there. gay or lesbian. Thank you both very much to Kate Harris, who founded the LG. Thanks so very much to Kate Harris for such an interesting question posed, as they often are in some pretty confident terms. Uh, you know, uh, children being pushed through medical transition uh, isn't interesting. <laughs> it's just interesting. Sure, listen, let's take it seriously. Come on. Come on, let's rein it in. We can do this. We take it for the question we know is intended to be, and we'll see if we can't find an answer. The question here, I think, is... Are children and young people being hurried through transition-related services and systems, whether that be in school, whether that be through medical services? What are people's experiences of these services, of transition? Is it being hurried through or is it something else entirely? Maybe more broadly, like what are their experiences like? So what I did, as we do every time, I took a look at the literature my approach here was to take a look at all the qualitative literature from children and young people around the world accessing transition-related services uh, to try to understand what are people's actual experiences so that we could have a look and try to uh, get a sense of what their experiences are. So all of these studies have some qualitative component. Uh, so what I will do is try to kind of rely a little bit on their direct quotations to, to kind of get, bring this to life a little bit. But we start our journey, starts together as always, uh, but not as always, with kid and colleagues this year. Difficult to find, stressful to navigate. Uh, what a wonderful title of the study. Parents' experiences accessing affirmative care for gender diverse youth, published in LGBT Health. Um, really interesting. So they took a look at, basically they asked parents to complete a cross-sectional online survey in 2020. These are parents of gender diverse youth who are seeking or currently receiving uh, or who have ever received gender-affirming medical care as a minor under the age of 18 uh, from across the US. So there are a total of 277 respondents uh, to this big wide-scale survey, which is really interesting, right? 42% lived in the northeast of the country. The majority were white, 94% white, which is not ideal. Uh, really, researchers need to be doing a lot better because when you get a wide-scale survey like this, you know, it just takes 
those taking those extra steps to make sure that marginalized communities know that this research is like keen on their perspective, uh, asking for their opinion specifically. Uh, if you do these kind of big generic surveys and don't make those extra steps, then you you run into the issues of marginalization, right? People don't feel like it's for them. Um, they're too used to being marginalized, so uh, they're not going to jump into your study. So 93.9% white is bad, too, too white majority in this study. Um, it's often the case, but when you've got a 277 respondents from across the United States and 94% white, you made a mistake somewhere. And had children assigned female at birth, 71% did. Which on its own is pretty interesting, actually. Um, so these young people, uh, these parents, their young people, uh, on average, received uh, puberty blockers at age 13, uh, cross-sex hormones at age 15 and a half, Top surgery, that's kind of breast augmentation or mastectomy at around six, no, just shy of 17 years of age. And bottom surgery, that is hysterectomy, orchiectomy, vaginoplasty, metoidoplasty, etc., just before 19 years of age. And um, so these are young people who have experienced transition across the spectrum of, of uh, types of transition. Um, and their parents find that basically that this is difficult to find all kinds of, of transition-related services and they're stressful to navigate. That's a direct quotation, in fact, from a mother of a transgender son in Virginia. So they said some really interesting stuff. Uh, have just had the runaround. Go here, don't go there. Not sure what to tell you. And a lot of, I don't know how to help you. That's a mother of a transgender son from Colorado. My daughter got her blocker last month after battling our insurance. The fear she couldn't get it was terrifying. Mother of a transgender daughter from Ohio. He would also like top surgery, but insurance doesn't cover it. I'm a low-income single mum, so there's no money for that surgery right now. That's a mother of a transgender son from Massachusetts. The doctor was likely wanting to report us to a child protective agency simply because our child is transgender. It makes you scared to seek medical care for your child. That's the mother of a transgender son from North Carolina. It took about eight months of appointments and mental health assessments before starting Luprolide, which is a hormone blocker, uh, I think, mother of a transgender son in California. The only reason there's so much of a wait list in our state is because the head of the hospital only allows the gender clinic to make appointments one day a week. That's a mother of a transgender daughter from Connecticut. And the two other quotes here, um, just just... You know, when we talk about transgender support, like often people like this, this quote from uh, from the director of the LGB Alliance, you know, when she says oh, these kids are rushed through before they are ready or, you know, and they have negative experiences or they regret it. Uh, we've already talked about regret and detransition and stuff, but um, but these quotes, it, it's sometimes easy to think of this as a as a negative experience. But actually, it can be very affirming and life-saving. Father of a transgender son from Texas, he says, gender-affirming care has saved my child's life. Before transitioning, he was suicidal and depressed and had to go inpatient and do multiple intensive outpatient programs. Him being able to medically transition at the age of 16 has saved his life. From a mental health perspective, he's now doing incredibly well and is a full-time college student living on campus. Three years ago, he was struggling to survive. And this from a mother of a transgender son in California. 
I honestly don't know how he would be doing without the blockers, or even if he would still be here. I believe the blockers have not only saved his life, but helped him to thrive in who he is. So, you know, uh, I don't know if that, you know, these are from the States, obviously, but I, I don't think they represent, uh, you know, a large number of people, none of whom are kind of saying, well, I was hurried through. There's no evidence of them being hurried through before they are ready or being rushed to to medicalize situations or it's much more that the people are saying that things took maybe a little too long. Certainly things were very cautious and it took time and they were necessary. So Carlisle uh, and colleagues in 2021, it's like my kid came back overnight. Experiences of trans and non-binary young people and their families finding, uh, uh, seeking, finding and engaging with clinical care in England, in the International Journal of Transgender Health the International Journal of Transgender Health is one of my all-time favourites. We recently published a systematic review there just in the last few weeks. Um, I've got to tell you that the reviewers are the most wonderful people I have come across. You know, peer review is a mixed bag when you're publishing scientific research. Uh, and sometimes you'll have people who just say, no, you're awful, get out of my, don't darken my door again. Uh, that's a rare thing, but it does happen. Uh, often you get rejected and, and sometimes they're kindly... But this, these reviewers were, you know, they did a due diligence job. They, they were very careful, uh, but they were also very kind. Uh, and I really appreciate that. So a bit of a shout out to the International Journal of Transgender Health. So yeah, Carlisle and colleagues, um, they cite basically this kind of, they have this beautiful introduction that, uh, you know, says this. I'm going to actually I'm just gonna give you a direct quotation from their work because it's so it's wonderfully written, but it also just kind of pulls us into focus when we're talking about like uh, medical support for transition. Despite the overwhelmingly supportive evidence to be found in the last 15 years of international research on best practice models of clinical care, which are gender affirmative, then cites a bunch of uh, studies where a lot of whom actually we have already come across in our time. Uh, Aaron Saft, uh, Leibovitz, we've talked about uh, Lev and Pullen Sasfathon, we've talked about before. So loads of research in the field that kind of supports the hermitive care. We did a whole episode on it. Trans and non-binary children and young people and their families in England, UK, face many obstacles in accessing the best practice model of care. Waiting lists, delays in referral processing, and a lack of adequate training in the areas of gender identity development and gender dysphoria are the norm. Despite the existence of free point-of-care treatment via the National Health Service, many are pushed to find what they need in private practice. This paper illuminates some of the difficulties experienced by these families as they journey towards appropriate care. So the authors went into a deep dive uh, with 12 families. So one parent and one child from each families uh, from each family uh, and one parent and two siblings from one family. But most of the families had one parent, one child, uh, and they brought them together to interview them to talk about you know, their experience. Essentially, um, the children's range ages ranged from five to 20 um, with the mean and median ages being both 15 Six define their gender as trans male, one as trans female, two as male, and one as a girl. And finally, the last three participants, two of them described themselves as non-binary, and the last described themselves as trans male and non-binary. So we have, uh, you know, 12 
dyads, basically, uh, with one with two siblings in, uh, talking about their experiences. Uh, and they have some gorgeous direct quotations, uh, which, again, we're going to talk to directly. Are you sure you couldn't just be a lesbian that's butch but have issues with yourself? I was like, no, I'm not, because I hate the idea of being called a lesbian. I used to identify as lesbian and now I'm just like, yeah, I was just dumb and didn't know myself. It made me mad when they asked it. But then I went home and I couldn't stop thinking about it. But then I came to the realisation that no, they're just trying to get in my head, like make me regret everything I'm doing with myself. Because that's kind of what the Gender Identity Development Service does to people. But I'm like, no, this is me. I'm Charlie. I'm not a lesbian with gender issues because I don't even like girls anymore. This is a wonderful quote um, from a parent. Uh, basically, again, just how uh, good sound access to medical transition-related services appropriately uh, can be life-saving. The year and a bit before the blockers, he was literally suicidal. We had to make God knows how many trips to A&E, which is the accident and, and the emergency. It's like the emergency room in the UK. And that was just horrendous. We were on suicide watch constantly. He wouldn't get out of his bed. He wouldn't go anywhere. He was terrified of everything. It was horrific. The blockers kind of took half of that away and he was up and down a bit since. Uh, but since testosterone, he's getting on trains and going out to meet friends on his own. He's been volunteering in a school. He's joined the gym. He wants to join a theatre group. It's like my kid came back overnight. And then we have two quotes uh, from families who... Uh, having waited, uh, you know, for the NHS to to do something and finding that the wait was just prohibitively long, uh, looking to private options, kind of being forced to look through private options. We went through private care when we realised that he just wasn't going to be seen by the Gender Identity Development Service for years. It got to the stage that I just thought, I if I don't help him, I can't guarantee his own personal safety. You do what any parent does. You do what is going to make your child feel happy and is going to make your child feel that life is worth living. And the last parent. We were sat in a cafe and she was like, what if we went private to get you on testosterone? And I was like, that would be amazing. But I was also really like, that would also be very expensive. They had a reduced rate for people on a lower income and it was just one of those things where you just think, we've got to make this work. We'll find the money from somewhere. I got another weekend job to pay for it. It's an amazing and beautiful... It's why I find this heartwarming in a strange way. Like, it's sort of upsetting, obviously upsetting that these these parents and these kids don't have easy access to, to the healthcare to which they are entitled in this country, right? Um, but uh, in lieu of that, right, these parents going through whatever it takes to make sure that their children are happy and safe. Um, there's something, I don't know, there's something wonderful about that. I've been to like um, residential events with trans uh, kids and their parents before and talking to their parents. I remember distinctly talking to these two dads of trans girls uh, and uh, they were both just like, I have, you know, I have no idea uh, about any of this, but uh I just want my daughter to be happy and I'll do whatever it takes. <laughs> just, I just remember thinking, wow, you know, um, that's, that's awesome. <laughs> that's awesome. 
So on to Pullen Sans Fathon and colleagues, including uh, Julie Temple Newhook, uh, one of my favourite authors, uh, a name I keep seeing up uh, in that kind of supervisory role on studies. Love it. Uh, uh, once took Kenneth Zucker to task on <laughs> in, an, in the academic equivalent of Twitter feud. I love it. Uh, I knew that I wasn't cis. I knew that, but I didn't know exactly gender identity development, expression and affirmation in youth who access gender-affirming medical care in the International Journal of Transgender Health. God love that journal. Um, a total of tw 36 interviews conducted with youth and an additional 36 interviews conducted separately with their parents. Youth were 9 to 17 years old, an average of 15. Uh, now, this study is really interesting because they're in their interviews, they were particularly interested in, in, in looking at the distinction between young people who sort of came out a little earlier and those who came out a little later. And they were, you know, pondering, you know, what happens? Why, how does that take place, really? You know, do young people who come out a little later uh, generate their dysphoric feelings a little later? Uh, and, uh, or, or is there something else going on? And they found that something else was going on. Basically, they found that um, the sort of uh, while trans youth uh, often came out at puberty, it wasn't often due to the late onset of those dysphoric feelings or understanding themselves as trans or non-binary. It was the consequence of a long and difficult process towards accepting and understanding themselves in a social context where being trans is still a difficult reality. That's a direct quotation. So they talk about the, the the difference, like parents, they were saying, didn't experience this as like, oh yeah, it was a long and drawn out process of understanding oneself. For parents, it came quite quickly. So, you know, parents would often experience their young people having a kind of late onset of gender dysphoria, right? They would experience like gender distress quite late, like for the first time in puberty. But when they like interviewed the young people themselves, they're saying actually, you know, that was the last stage of a long and drawn out process. Again, you know, here we have the challenges of like the challenges of basically a very long and drawn out process of accessing medical care, basically. Uh, and by the time young people do come out and do want to access medical care, what this uh, like what this research highlights is that they've been going through a long and difficult process of accepting and understanding themselves in an often transphobic uh, social context. So by the time they're ready to seek medical care, they're ready to seek medical care. And the fact that they then have to wait years, particularly in, in a lot of countries, but particularly in the UK, years for access to that care um, is not ideal. So when, you know, we have people like, um, you know, we have, people, we have the director of the LGBT Alliance saying uh, these kids, as soon as they start to question, they're getting thrown into the medical service or they're getting, they're getting pushed into transition. Clearly what's uh, being cited here, 36 young people, uh, it didn't seem very much like they were at all rushing. If anything, they were moving very slowly and deliberately that their acceptance and understanding of themselves was actively slowed by the sort of the the difficulty of being openly trans in our social environments and also about like, you know, the time it takes for them to understand themselves. So, you know, when kids are seeking support, they're seeking support after that process has happened. It's not right at the start of that process when they're just questioning. And um, Carlisle, 2020, 
the experiences of transgender and non-binary children and young people and their parents in healthcare settings in England, UK. Interviews with members of a family support group in the International Journal of Transgender Health. I swear I'm not sponsored by this journal. Uh, I, I don't know how so many of our articles are coming from that same journal this time. Uh, I think because they just are big fans of qualitative studies, maybe. Who knows? So 65 parents here and children from 27 families from the family support group attended participatory workshops where they were given a range of briefs about health and family and friends and education. And then they basically were asked to define their own interview questions. So cool. And then interview one another. So they had these kind of broad briefs of health and family, friends and education. And then they constructed their own interview questions and interviewed each other. That's so cool to me. That's such a cool uh, model of practice, you know, because the challenge, of course, is that, you know, for our best intentions, a lot of research in this field is kind of about us without us because, you know, that's what marginalization does is it prohibits people being in a position of responsibility to do this research. Uh, but here we have a model that even if the researcher isn't trans or isn't in this community, they can uh, like help people who are to conduct the research. Uh, that's a beautiful participatory model of research that I really enjoy. Uh, it's called Illuminate, this participant researcher model. Um, really cool. Um, <clears throat> essentially presents workshop participants with a brief, supports them to develop more interview questions, and then carry out data collection by interviewing each other. Absolutely brilliant. Now, the overarching sense emerging from the workshops was dissatisfaction, frustration, and distress that both parents and children and young people felt with healthcare providers. Then that's both at primary care and gatekeeper referrals such as GPs and CAMs and the specific gender-focused gender identity development services provision itself. So, so they were feeling dissatisfaction, frustration and distress at every stage of the referral pathway throughout the medical system. This is a good, uh, good quote here to just bring this to life a bit. The professional refused to refer to my trans son onto adult services because he was too feminine. He went to his own GP, but the young person's gender identity development clinic had advised them not to refer. So he has not got access to the adult gender identity clinic. The patient's, uh, the parent's support or lack of has been influenced as they have faith in the professional's opinion. The young person's ability to consent and make informed decisions is not at all being heard. One young transgender man in the workshop said that being misgendered by his GP led to be him being denied the right to have a referral and being advised that I would be okay after therapy, which resulted in a decline in mental health. He also felt like an outcast, not a valid member of society worth listening to. He stopped work. He nearly felt like giving up. This is amazing uh, stuff. When one transgender woman attended an appointment wearing jeans and trainers, she was described by her gender identity development service practitioner as not serious enough to warrant support for clinical intervention. I've got to say that I, I hear this a lot from young people and I have had this experience myself. I don't know if I've told you, when I first went for my first uh, gender identity clinic appointment in London, uh, I... You know, I didn't, I wasn't pitching my voice up. I'm realised with you kind folk here, I I, keep, I kind of have this my Radio 4 voice. Um, 
I, I'm not so worried. But generally speaking, when I'm out and about, I do pitch it up a little bit more carefully. But I didn't do that when I was uh, attending my first appointment because, I don't know, I, I, I wasn't exactly certain where I lay, but I felt like a girl on the inside. I knew that's right, that feels like home, that's what I am. I knew what I was and what I needed. But the world is so transphobic that I didn't really want to try to do it without the support of hormones. I didn't want to try social transition without the support of hormones because I would be very apparent to people that I was trans. Um, And that scared me. And so when I went to my appointment, I went, you know, girl mode, but maybe I wasn't as skilled as I could have been in that. And my first uh, psychiatrist at the gender identity clinic was like, uh, they basically described me as uh, androgynous stroke feminine. And literally said to me, he was like, you know, if you aren't, if you aren't going to be a woman in all ways and means in all areas of your life, then I'm not sure that we can help you. And I was like, I literally said to him, I was like, it feels like you're sort of threatening to withhold medical treatment because I'm not feminine enough. And he was like, I, he said something along the lines of, no, 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 that's not what's happening. <laughs> I was like, I, I mean, I think it is. <laughs> I think it is what's happening. And um, when I went back to my second appointment, because you need to have two appointments before you can get access to hormones, even as an adult. So I had to wait, you know, nine months for my first appointment, six months for my second appointment. So you have to have two appointments there with two different practitioners before you can get access to hormones. Um, and I was like in the six month wait, I was like challenge accepted. And I went as girl as I could to that second appointment so that I could prove that I was serious enough to warrant support for clinical intervention and that second practitioner was like you could see it on his face he was just like yes yes this is a trans woman (laughs) this is a trans woman in front of me yes hormones yours there's another quote from this same study almost all of the workshop participants who had been to the gender identity development service reported experiences where lengthy timeframes were applied in an arbitrary universal manner. For example, certain medications were given for a set period of time before the child could move on to the next stage, according to the clinic's policy, despite the child's age and stage of puberty at the start of the time period without applying nuanced clinical reasoning for each individual. They thought it would be better if these policies were research-informed and specific to each child's needs. A triage system trial was suggested by some parents to try and work out how to best prioritise children and young people in need of faster input. Really interesting. Uh, Not a bad idea at all. I'm no clinician, though. Now we move on. Julie Temple Newhook, once again, you got to love it. Uh, Sans Fathon and colleagues uh, in 2019, the experiences of gender diverse and trans children and youth considering and initiating medical interventions in Canadian gender affirming specialty clinics in the International Journal of Transgenderism. Ha <laughs> you thought it was going to be transgender health. Uh, it wasn't, it was transgenderism. Ha, <laughs> I don't know what that proves. Uh, the International Journal of Transgenderism, uh, never published in there, I don't think, but hey, maybe uh, we'll try to. I haven't heard this journal before. The complete data set, Parents and Youth, was collected at three Canadian clinics offering gender-affirming care to trans youth. That's the Meraki uh, Health Centre in Montreal, in Quebec, uh, the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario in Ottawa, Ontario, 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 and the GDAAY Clinic of the Health Sciences Centre in Winnipeg, Manitoba. So all three clinics uh, operate from a sort of gender-affirming care perspective, 
uh, and they they aim to provide youth with, in direct quotes, the opportunity to live in the gender that feels most real and or comfortable for the child, and the ability for children to express gender without experiencing restriction, criticism, or ostracism. There are 35 participants in the studies. Um, uh, 35 participants in the study, four uh, were aged 9 to 11 years, two were aged from 13 to 15 years, and uh, 17 were 16 and 17 years of age. So uh, the vast majority were kind of older young people, uh, but it did range down to the age of nine. Um, 14 of the youth were trans feminine, i.e. they'd been assigned male at birth, and 22 were trans mask, uh, had been assigned female at birth. Only four identified as non-white or indigenous. Once again, we've got to do better with our representation in these studies, guys. Some beautiful quotes here. Of course, if I talked to my mom, say, before my puberty hit or when I was 10 years old, yeah, I would have done it. Yeah, I would have told her. Everything would have happened. I would have had my real puberty as a girl. It would have been easier. But I don't regret my life right now. I'm really happy with my life. But if I could have told her sooner, I would have done it. That's Eloise, who's trans femme, uh, 16-year-old. Well, at first I like, you know, I wanted blockers and I wanted hormones and I like never talked about it. Like I would, I wouldn't avoid it if it came up, but I would never start a conversation about it. So, you know, I think I probably, you know, I, I could have gotten them like sooner, but at that I, I was so shy and I was like, no, I don't want to like bother them or anything. So I, I like never talked about it. It's Yannick, trans male from uh, 16 years old, 16 years of age. I remember my mum and I talking about what next steps. At this point, I was still very unsure. And so my mum had the idea that I could talk to someone, maybe so they could help me, guide me in the track that I'm going to get. And so she found the specialty clinic here. And so I came here and met with the intake nurse. And that was awesome. Adrian, trans mask from uh, 14 years of age. So this is a good direct quote from the study. The length of time youth waited to access desired medical interventions varied depending on their developmental stage and the clinic they went to. Though many youth said they were satisfied with the speed at which they accessed care. This is a note from Cora. Uh, it, Canada has a sort of slightly stronger affirmative care model than the UK, which is a bit more watchful waiting. Back to the quote. Some expressed frustration and many said they felt delays were unnecessarily long. They recounted delays due to what they considered to be long wait times for first and subsequent appointments, limited resources, clinic policies, including extended assessment processes before being offered blockers and or hormone therapy, lack of consensus between themselves, the provider and their parent, or a combination thereof. The sense of urgency and frustration many youth shared about delays was likely amplified by the often protracted internal and family processes that they had lived through even before they sought care. There's a beautiful direct quote from Steve, a trans male. The process was way too long because I feel like I've been waiting for this transition since I was like six years old. Steve, trans male, 17 years of age. All right, so trying to answer this question from uh, the director. I call her the director. I can't remember her actual name. Um, from Kate Harris. 
remember her name. Kate Harris, uh, co-founder of the LGB Alliance and now director of the LGB Alliance. Listen, uh, you know, it's a fascinating question. Um, and I'm super interested in it. You know, the idea that uh, young people might be being hurried through transition uh, before they're ready. Um, so when we look at this literature, uh, it's all very qualitative and very interesting uh, from Canada, from the UK, from the US, and all of the young people in that literature are pretty consistently saying that they're not being hurried through anything. Then actually what we're finding is that, you know, kids, uh, kids can find it hard to tell anybody what they're experiencing, right? It's it. They go through a long process. So we've talked about before the idea of leaving breadcrumbs. The young people, it seems that you know they try things out in different places, leaving little hints for people to find, and how people respond to those hints you know, matters a great deal in terms of them uh, developing their understanding of themselves, but also in terms of them feeling like the world is going to be an okay place for them to be out and themselves to be their authentic selves in the world. And as we find here, you know, uh, by the time that kids actually would tell their parents and seek then, you know, potentially with view to seeking medical intervention, they've already been through a heavy duty process of trying to understand themselves. I didn't see any evidence at all. I mean, it's kind of wild to think that children who are gender non-conforming and experimenting in school, leaving those breadcrumbs, would be received by people in school with a sort of, oh, this must mean you're inevitably trans. We need to send you to transition-related services. You know, I don't think that's at all happening. Uh, as far as I can see in the literature here, far more the case is that young people are finding the people they feel safe you know, dropping these hints to, to see how they react. And then after a process that's long and deliberate, they then will tell somebody, tell their parents often what's happening for them. Sometimes school staff, maybe, I don't know. I don't think the research is there to kind of say who, uh, to describe who the children first tell. That might be an interesting piece of research to do, actually. Um, but Instead, we have a situation where when children tell their parents, they've already been through quite a long and drawn out process. And so what we find, of course, is that then parents seek medical transition related services for their children, young people sometimes. And when they do, those processes take time because there are arbitrary waiting periods. There are also delays with referral and a lot of delays with being seen for first appointment, particularly in the UK. But seemingly everywhere around the world really and these you know these services and systems are poorly funded they're not you know they don't have enough capacity to meet the demand uh, so it's difficult to get first appointment even when you get first appointment you then need to kind of prove to people that you're serious by showing that you are you know doing it insistently consistently and persistently you're identifying a particular way so it's no wonder that children and young people feel like these systems and services are a, very difficult to access, and B, even when you access, very difficult and slow to actually provide the care that you need. So I think we could say with some certainty here uh, that Kate Harris, uh, you know, hopefully this answers your question. Uh, I don't think we're at risk here of children and people being at all hurried through any kind of process. Rather, what we find is that children and young people need access to transition-related healthcare and often cannot get it in a timely manner. So here's what we need, right? We just need services and systems to be fully funded so that we can access medical health care when these children and young people need it. 
And more than that, we need to make sure that we have schools and uh, colleges and universities and workplaces. And, and we need to make sure that we have families too, who are all, you know, open to the idea that gender diversity is simply a part of young people's lives. And that we are going to create a world. We need to be able to communicate to these people that we have created a world where everyone, everyone can find a place to belong. Thanks so very much for joining me. Hey, when we come back, I think we're going to do something quite awesome for the end of the year. Um, you know, when we come back, we're going to take a look at gender euphoria to just kind of move away a little bit from this kind of negative, <laughs> negative press the trans community gets so often. We're going to take a look at the growing literature around gender euphoria to ask, you know, what are the wonderful electric positive experiences that being trans can yield? And how do we make sure that we create a world where more people can experience that wonderful experience if they are gender diverse? When we come back, gender euphoria. Thanks so very much for joining me. You're so, so welcoming. It's so wonderful to see you. And I look forward to seeing you as always in the next one.